0: The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 192. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page, at Brian McClanahan. And, of course, subscribe to my YouTube page, at Brian McClanahan. You can also go to BrianMcClanahan.com. You can give me an email address, and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audio book of the same title read by yours truly. You can support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. You can purchase my five courses available there. You can also go to brianmclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. And, of course, you can also support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to learn, true, T-R-U-E, history.com. That is my affiliate link for Liberty Classroom, where I teach with Tom Woods, Kevin Goodsman, Jason Jewell, a whole bunch of great faculty members, Brad Berzer. And um, you can use that to subscribe at Liberty Classroom, and that will also support the Brian McClanahan Show. And you can always get your Brian McClanahan Show gear at redbubble.com. Just do a search for my name, B-R-I-O-N McClanahan, and you get your Brian McClanahan Show gear with my logo on it makes a great Christmas gift. Christmas is coming, so get that gear and uh, help support The Brian McClanahan Show. Okay, well, obviously, we had a big news story over the weekend. George H.W. Bush died, and we've had all kinds of news stories about it. Everybody's talking about it, so, of course, I have to follow suit, but I'm going to do it in a way that's a little different. I'm not going to talk about his presidency. I've already done that several times. I wrote a chapter on George H.W. Bush in my book, Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America. I, uh, I covered this in a class for Learn True History, the 10 worst and 10 best presidents, and George H.W. Bush is in the 10 worst. In fact, that, that section of the class covers more than 10. It's actually 13 presidents, and that's because I basically did that part of the class off of my book. So I've already talked about George W. Bush, H.W. Bush, I should say, and who he is as a president. And as a president, he was a catastrophe. He was a disaster. But I want to talk about the wider implications of what's going on now in America when we look at this, uh, the ceremonies and the public forms of mourning and all of the things that are happening in America and compare that to the way things used to be um, and, I, and, and where this stuff comes from. And not just that, how Americans conceptualize the presidency today. And this has been a trend that's been going on now, say, for the past uh, 40 years or so. And I think the thing that's interesting about it, I, I want to place this squarely at the feet of the Republican Party. And I, and I think that there's a way to look at this and understand this all comes from the Republican Party. Because the Republican Party and the ideas of the Republican Party, if you trace those back, all the way back to 1854, and then before that, when you had a lot of these members, where did these members of the Republican Party come from? Of course, the Republican Party created in 1854 a coalition of Whigs and Democrats. But if you look at those Whigs, and you look at where some of these Whigs came from, and you trace their intellectual origins, not all the Whigs, but some of the Whigs, and look where they go to, you run a straight line back to the New England Federalists. Now, not all the Whigs were New England Federalists. They certainly had a certain element of Jeffersonian Republicanism, at least people like Henry Clay. I think that Michael Holt has conclusively argued that the Whig Party was not just this easy, easily pigeonholed party where you had old Federalists and old Republicans, uh, and, and uh, forming the old Republicans went into the Democrat Party and the old Federalists went into the Whig Party. It, it wasn't always that cut and dry. You had a lot of Whigs that were not part of that old Federalist Party. They were old Jeffersonian Republicans. In fact, what they were were national Republicans. They were Republicans, but that believed in the Hamiltonian economic system. So um, you certainly had this, this, these shades of gray, so to speak, in the Whig Party. But you did have a faction of the Whig Party that were old New England Federalists. And those old New England Federalists, of course... We're accused over and over again by the Jeffersonians, particularly those in Virginia, of being monarchists. And what we're seeing today with the public presentation of George H.W. Bush is a celebration of monarchy. It, it's, it's nothing else. It is a celebration of monarchy. And that is a complete distortion of the design of the presidency, of the founder's conception of the executive branch, of American belief in an executive. This is anti-American, what's happening today, and how we're fawning over George H.W. Bush. And it's not just George H.W. Bush. We had the same situation when Gerald Ford died, when Richard Nixon died, uh, when uh, Ronald, (coughs) Ronald Reagan died. Not necessarily to the same extent as what we're seeing with George H. W. Bush, because I think it's gotten worse. And uh, there's also this religious element to it, which I'll get into as well. But where does all this stuff come from? Why are we... And, and the National Review actually had a little piece on this. The National Review of all places. And I'm going to read it because it's only two paragraphs. Uh, and it's written by Charles Koch. I, I guess it's, a, it's either Cook or Koch. Um I would say Cook, actually. Charles Cook. And so, uh, it's only two paragraphs. So I want to read this. This is in National Review. And he said, quote, It is in no way to insult George H.W. Bush, or any other president for that matter, to ask whether the retooling of their calendars is an appropriate way for the people of a republic to respond to the death of an elected representative. Tomorrow, the press reports, is to be a day of mourning. Of course, this is now Wednesday. A day on which the stock market will be closed, on which the federal government will shut down, on which the House of Representatives will begin a a week-long break, on which various universities will cancel classes, on which the Postal Service will halt deliveries, on which the Supreme Court will adjourn, and on which major American newspapers will postpone events that they had previously planned to hold. Across the U.S., flags will be flown at half staff for a month. Why? Irrespective of whether he was a great man or a poor one, George H.W. Bush was a public employee. He was not a king. He was not a pope. He did not found or save or design the republic. To shut down our civil society for a day in order to mark his peaceful passing is to invert the appropriate relationship between the citizen and the state and to take yet another step toward the fetishization of an executive branch whose role is supposed to be more bureaucratic than spiritual. But that has come of late to resemble Caesar more than to resemble Coolidge. And I think that there's, there's several things to, quote-unquote, unpack. I mean, this is the term that a lot of millennials use. We've got to unpack this. And so I want to build off of some of these things that he said in this little, little two-paragraph piece about the state worship and the funeral procession that is the George H.W. Bush monstrosity at this point. And I addressed this actually in my Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America. I wrote this a couple years ago. That chapter on Barack Obama, quote-unquote Obama, the reason the publisher did that is because they knew that it's red meat for conservatives to bash Obama. But there are three presidents in that chapter, starting with George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and George W. Bush. And I said in that particular chapter that Americans have, for the last 30-plus years... Now, we're at 30 years, essentially, with, uh, you know, 1988. Uh, For the last 30 years, we have accepted an elected monarchy. That has been what America wants, an elected monarchy. And if you don't believe me, look at this state funeral. But not just that. Look at the way the presidents are treated Look at the way that the wife of the president is treated. Look at the way that the motorcade is used by the executive office. And I'll give you just a current example from from yesterday. When Donald Trump went to go visit with George W. Bush and Laura Bush, he had to drive, or he had to go, 250 yards. 250 yards. Just two football fields down the road. Instead of walking... They took the entire motorcade to do it, 250 yards, got in the car, drove down. Now, you could say this was for safety reasons because, of course, the president gets into his bulletproof tank and rides down the road. And, of course, we want the president to be safe. There's no doubt about that. And you have a very contentious uh, American electorate, and the president's polarizing. But still, the president goes out and gets in his presidential coach and rides down the road 250 yards and then rides back down the road 250 yards to go back to where he was. Now back in in 1840, when Martin Van Buren was running against William Henry Harrison, Van Buren was portrayed by the Whigs as being a monarchist. He lived in the palace and he ate from golden spoons and he rode in the royal coach Whereas William Henry Harrison was a man of the people. He preferred to sit in a log cabin and drink hard cider. This is the log cabin and hard cider campaign. You see, in 1840, it was seen as a detriment for the president to be a monarchist. But in 2018, this is what we want. Now, William Henry Harrison, of course, was a Whig. And you had this strain of Jeffersonianism in that particular Whig Party at the time, but there were members of that party who were old New England Federalists. And you trace that New England Federalism back and you find the monarchists. Now, were they really monarchists or were they not? I think in some cases they actually were. For example, in June of 1787, when Alexander Hamilton is attending the Philadelphia Convention, he gives one of the more famous speeches of the convention. It's a speech that Forrest MacDonald said, change the tone of the convention. I argue it really didn't because nobody acted on it. In fact, they looked the other way and said, we're not doing a darn thing that Alexander Hamilton said we need to do here. In this particular speech in June of 1787, Hamilton placed the entire problems of the American Federal Republic at that point, essentially at the feet of the states. And this is something that the Federalists... The, the later Federalists, would, would constantly go back to. Now, at this time, these people are nationalists. And what we have today are, are nationalists. So Hamilton, the nationalist, makes his speech and essentially wants to jettison the states, create a national government. Uh, and he actually said... The reason we need to jettison the states is because, quote, all of the weight of government is on the side of the states and must continue so long as the states continue to exist. He wanted a general government with a president elected for life. And that's just part of it. But, I mean, his, his attack was on the states. And this is generally the attack that the nationalists use. The states were the problem. We need to get rid of the states. The states are causing all kinds of issues for this general government and they need to go away. Hamilton didn't necessarily say that they need to be abolished, but he said they needed to be reduced to corporations for local purposes. And when you say that they're a corporation, they're a creation of the central authority. The central authority has complete control. And he actually advised that. He said, look, the governors of the states uh, should be appointed by the general government. And those governors shall have a negative upon the laws about to be passed in the state of which he is governor or president. So the general government then appoints the governors of the states, and the governors of the states then can negate laws. So, in other words, the states have no power unless the central authority says they need to, or what powers the central authority gives them. This is a unitary, top-down state that you would find in, say, France. So it's a, it's a monarchical system that Hamilton is proposing in June of 1787. And the reason he advocated a president for life, and if you read this speech, it's because he said, look, we're going to get there anyways. Eventually, we're going to have a president that's a king. We might as well skip the, the hubbubaloo and, and get there. We might as well just skip all of the pain. Might as well skip the rigmarole and get to the president now that's an elected monarch. We'll just have an elected monarch. We'll just get to it now. And Benjamin Franklin essentially said the same thing. He said, look, we're we're going to get to a monarchy at some point. How long it takes is up to the will of the American people and their uh, attachment to Republican institutions. Because if you go and you look back at the history of, of Western civilization, this is what you find. And I think that that... Allusion in this Cook piece to Caesar is appropriate because you see Caesar fashioned himself a Republican. And this is the imagery that he gave while he was destroying the Republic. I mean, Caesar was saving the Republic, but yet he was becoming a, a, a literal dictator with a rubber-stamped Senate and so the the imagery of of republican rome was still there under julius caesar but the apparatus of republican rome was gone and so i think that's the cook uh, uh, analogy there is spot on and i've talked about this in a in a previous podcast you know we are rome we are rome today but a lot of this has to do with the republican party and i know there are republicans that listen to this podcast and they get very upset when i bash the republican party but the republican party is a major problem in america and the republican party is a major problem in america because it is a caesar like party at the local level and even the state level to most in most cases the republican party is a fairly good party in that it promises limited government It has people that are grassroots people that really go out there and they believe these things. And you get people elected to your city council and you get people elected to your state legislature. And they believe these things that they're advocating. They believe in limited government. They believe in federalism. They believe in those things. I know a lot of Republicans that do. But there's something about the federal city that makes all of that go away. Because in reality, the Republican Party has always been, since the age of Lincoln, a monarchist party. What I mean by that is that when Abraham Lincoln assumed power in 1861, he assumed, not directly the the role of of a monarchist, of a king, but because of the war and because of the burden placed on the executive during that war, The president became more like a king, and the Republican Party rallied around it. Now, following Lincoln, you certainly had the Republicans uh, being very critical of executive power with Andrew Johnson. Those were the radicals. They were very critical of, of executive power because the executive was a block to their particular social, political, and economic agenda. They didn't like Andrew Johnson. But then they got Grant. And Grant was certainly their guy. And they were fine with a strong executive as long as their guy was holding the reins, you see. They didn't care. And not only that, they looked at Grant as somewhat of an elected king. In fact, Grant was the first president to attempt to run for a third term. So, you had this slow drift beginning in 1861 of the presidency into an elected monarchy and the elevation of the president to a point that had never been contemplated before, and this is all due to the Republican Party, the party of Lincoln. you got to think about the imagery the Republican Party uses, the attachment they have to Abraham Lincoln. That is their guy. They worship Abraham Lincoln. He is the deity of Washington, D.C. It's not George Washington anymore. The man who resigned his commission. Every, commi- every political office he had when he won the American War for Independence. The man who could have been king. Who could have been Caesar. It's not George Washington anymore. No. It is Abraham Lincoln. And the attachment to Lincoln. And you try to say, well, Lincoln is Washington. Lincoln is not Washington. In any particular way, shape, or form. Lincoln is nowhere close to Washington in terms of personality, disposition, governance. He is not George Washington. But yet, this is what happens. Lincoln has become the symbol of America. And because Lincoln is a symbol of America, because Lincoln was essentially an elected king during the war, and because if Lincoln had just survived the ideas that Lincoln could have continued to save America, we have this worship of the executive branch that is solely built on Republican, capital R, Republican Party ideology. You see. So that carries forward. Now, in the 19th century, you had Republicans, you had Hayes, and you had Garfield, and you had Arthur. These guys were not necessarily monarchists. In fact, I look at that 19th century period as a beautiful period of American executive history because none of those guys were strong executives. That's great. That's exactly what was supposed to happen. These individuals were executing the laws of Congress. They had taken a step back. The Congress had assumed a primary role. Now, they were passing all kinds of unconstitutional legislation, so the president should have been doing something to stop that. So in that way, they were too weak. And when you get Grover Cleveland, you get a president who was certainly committed to upholding his oath of office and checking all of this stuff, which... Then the Republicans started saying, well, this is monarchy. I mean, they started, this, this is smacking a monarchy. It wasn't. Not at that point. And then you have, of course, William McKinley, who was a transitionary figure, a transformational figure. He was the first modern president. And that leads to Teddy Roosevelt, who becomes, Teddy Roosevelt's a Republican, who becomes, in many ways, this embodiment of Republican ideology when it comes to the executive branch. A strong executive Who leads from the front like an American king. And we've never turned back. And that is squarely at the feet of the Republican Party. And Roosevelt from New York had old Puritan lineage. These old New England Federalists were in the Roosevelt Party. Now, the Roosevelt family itself, of course, not necessarily, but they did have, they did trace some of their family back to New England. And that idea of New England federalism, of monarchy, which is essentially what these individuals wanted at times, of monarchy, is so important in this particular strain of the Republican Party. They believed in an elected king. I mean, a lot of these New England federalists did. They wanted it. So... You get That becomes the Republican Party, and it becomes the centralization. They, they worship that centralization of America. They love the centralization of America. It goes back to Hamilton. We've got to reduce the states to their corporate powers. The states are obstacles to what we want to do. Teddy Roosevelt said at one point, I make legislation and I let Congress debate me. Not debate the legislation because that would produce gridlock. That would produce inactivity. They debate me. I just act. Now, this, came, this was in regard to foreign policy, but that was an important distinction to make because the president was supposed to have some constitutional checks on his foreign policy power, his po- foreign policy-making power. That was supposed to happen, but uh, it didn't under Teddy Roosevelt. He creates a whole other country in, in South America, Panama, from on the ruins of Colombia, to get the Panama Canal. And he does this, and he says, I'm going to let the Senate debate me, not debate what I did. They're going to debate me, or they're not going to be able to debate the issue itself. They're going to debate me and what I did. So this is an important transformation. Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, certainly moving in that direction. And when you get to Franklin Roosevelt, of course, you have Woodrow Wilson who did the same thing. When you get to Franklin Roosevelt, there was a little reprieve there with Calvin Coolidge. But you get to Franklin Roosevelt, and he says in 1933, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Now, I did a, a particular episode on this conception of liberty, and that was the liberty of the community over the liberty of the individual. And that was Puritan uh, nationalism. That was New England federalism. And Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt embodied that. And, of course, as Roosevelt becomes King, King Franklin... King Roosevelt, during the war, you again get this move towards more and more focus on the executive branch. Roosevelt, during the Great Depression, declares war on the economy. He's going to use dictatorial powers. This is the monarchist. This is exactly what Hamilton in Federalist 69 said we wouldn't have. But we got... Now, Hamilton, of course, wanted these things, but he knew in Federalist 69 he was arguing for a constitution that was not his. It was something else. When he gets into office as Secretary of the Treasury, he's able to do something and power that he couldn't do when he was arguing for ratification. It's why Hamilton lied. Now, I mean, people would uh, criticize me for that So say, no, it's right here. It's clearly said this is what he's going to do. But when you look at the entire breadth of information that's out there on the ratification, the Constitution that Hamilton advocated as Secretary of the Treasury was not the Constitution that was ratified. That's clear. But we have Franklin Roosevelt, another president who screwed up America. We have Franklin Roosevelt, and you get more and more focus on the executive branch, more and more centralization. The Republican Party is fine with this, for the most part. Now, I know in the 1930s they resisted. You had the Conservative Manifesto, which was actually written by a Democrat. So you had some Democrats. uh, Josiah Bailey of North Carolina wrote this thing. So you had some Democrats who were breaking from that Roosevelt monarchy, Uh, But Republicans were certainly in line with this image of America and the strong president. They believed it because it was their thing. It was their thing. It was what they had wanted since the age of Lincoln. And it's it's no coincidence that you start seeing more and more Lincoln worship when you get to the middle of the 20th century. And then, of course, Roosevelt dies. And you had some of the state worship during the Roosevelt death, but not like it is today. Then you get Truman, more and more centralization. Uh, or Then you get Eisenhower. Then you get, and, and of course, every, for every successive president, we get more and more focus on the executive branch. And ultimately then the Supreme Court and everything is now in the center. Every issue becomes a national issue. And because of that, because that happens, we now have the worship of the center and the state and the president as essentially an elected king. And it's no coincidence now the Republican Party is in control of the executive branch. The Republican Party is in control of the Congress still at this point. And look at what's happening in Washington, D.C. This is all built on the Republican Party, on the worship of of the executive as the king and the central authority as the final arbiter of everything. You have Donald Trump. Donald Trump, who is a businessman, Donald Trump shows up at Bush's casket and salutes a military salute. Why not just give him a Hail Caesar sign and walk out? This is a civil employee. He wasn't a he's not a military employee, he's a civil employee. Just that symbol itself. The fact when Bush is being loaded into Air Force One, the Royal Air Coach <laughs> that you have a 21-gun salute, you've got the Howitzers out there, boom, boom, and you've got all this stuff going on. And then there's going to be a 21-aircraft salute of George H.W. Bush. This stuff is absolutely insane. It is absolutely insane, but this is the Republican Party. And I was talking to a colleague of mine, Don Livingston, the other day, and he said he remembered back in World War II how all this stuff started started going on. He was a young boy, and uh, he he remembers how all these... U.S. flags are just put everywhere. And then, of course, you had the 1960s, and nobody did that before. Nobody put U.S. flags out on their property, on their front yard. Nobody did any of that stuff before World War II. And then you get the 1960s, and everyone's burning the flag, and the reaction to it was overkill. We're going to put not only U.S. flags everywhere. We're going to put the biggest U.S. flags we can find. You go to your car dealership, and you've got a flag as big as a house sitting there flying in the, flapping in the breeze. That's the Republican Party. It was the reaction to it. Well, if they're going to burn that flag, we're going to put we're going to put a flag sticker on everything. We're going to show we're we're proud to be an American. It's Lee Greenwood. This is what you get in the this is the Reagan reaction in the 80s because of the of the hippies in the 60s and the anti-war people burning the flag and doing all the things they were doing. So we're just going to go the exact opposite. We're just going to worship the state even more. We're going to worship the executive branch even more. My country may be wrong, but is my country right or wrong? I'm just going to go out there and yeah, rah, rah. And this is what we get with George H.W. Bush. What we're seeing in the state worship and his funeral is squarely at the feet of the Republican Party. If you don't like what's going on, if you look at this and say, this is a little bit crazy, I mean yeah the guy died and that's sad and his family was sad for his family uh, you know even if it, look pre- bush was a awful president a terrible guy uh, as president he did all kinds of awful things he violated his oath of office continually but he was a grandpa he had grandchildren and they loved him he had great grandchildren and they loved him and and uh, his children loved him so of course i mean i don't you, you know when you look at anyone ideologically when when they die their family mourns and that's a sad thing and, and you feel sorry for them. And that's fine. We could have, we could have said, ah, oh, that's, that's bad. You know, George, he was 94 years old. 94-year-old people die. This is what happens. He lived a long life. And so um, you, you feel bad for his family, and that's that's something that happens. But do we have to go and do what we're doing? Is it have to be this kind of overkill for a one-term president who was awful? Who was awful. Same thing with Gerald Ford or Richard Nixon. I can only imagine what's going to happen when Bill Clinton or Barack, excuse me, Barack Obama die. Because the the media that hated George H.W. Bush are fawning over the man. It's only going to be worse with individuals they actually loved and Clinton and Obama. Uh, So I can only imagine. But, of course, the state worship is there. And one of the other things I think, and, and I'm getting up against time here, one of the other things I think about this and why I think Americans go over do overkill now in terms of public mourning is because of a lack of religion. Um, this is it for many Americans. Over half the American population doesn't really believe in in any kind of spiritual afterlife anymore. They just don't. So this is it. When you die, I mean, the mourning is there, and it's, look at me. It's social media driven. It's media driven. Look at me. we got to look at everybody crying. Oh, that's terrible. Look, George W. Bush is crying. we got to look at all these things. We have to have all these people brought in. We have to do all this stuff, these state funerals, because it's all about look at me and what can I do. And not just that, there is no eternity. It's this life, and that's it. And so we mourn in ways that... Perhaps people didn't mourn before because they understood, okay, well, uh, he gets to go to a better place. And I know that there has been some of that. Well, he's now with Barbara, and he's got uh, you know, he's got uh, his little daughter there that, that died. And so he's with his family again. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think some of this has to be because of the here and now. And it's all about image. we got to show an image. I mean, I don't know if when the Queen of England dies, if it's going to be like this. I really don't think it will. I don't think it'll be anything close to what's going on, the amount of money, taxpayer money that's being spent on George H.W. Bush's funeral. I don't think it's there. So this entire process is a fine example of what I wrote in my nine presidents book. We've got an American monarchy. The Republican Party is squarely responsible for it. It's the Lincolnian image of America. It is centralization. It's the elected king that we have that... Hamilton said we would get. We've got it, and so my my assessment of that a couple of years ago, when I wrote Nine Presidents, is spot on. And that here is what we have: we have the uh, the American monarchy, the American king, and it's Republican Party that's created that. If the Democrats were in power right now, if they were in office, president, Congress. You would have seen some of this, and I think there's no doubt, no question, but I don't think you would have seen it to the extent that you're seeing it now. It is a worship of the executive, and of course, because it's one of theirs, it's a Republican that died, they're going to go, and it's a president, uh, the father of a president, too. You've got the entire Bush dynasty. I mean, the dynasty, the, the, the aristocracy. I mean, this is, this is what we're looking at here. You've got all of that wrapped up into this, and so... I really think that's that's what's going on here. Um, and it is absolutely sickening. When you look at this from, from an originalist perspective, from an American Republican, lowercase r perspective, the founding generation would be spinning in their graves. Thomas Jefferson didn't even put that he was president on his tombstone. And yet, I'm sure, that's going to be squarely on George H.W. Bush's. George Washington didn't want to be president. And here we go, we've gone from George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams even, who was, who was uh, criticized for being a monarchist. I think, uh, the, again, some of the New England Federalists were, maybe not Adams himself. Uh, Monroe and Madison, who, I mean, this was not what they wanted. We've gone from that. We've gone from the 1840 election when it was a detriment to be seen as a king to this. How far have we come in American history? In American political history, and American Republican, lowercase r, principles. So regardless of what Bush was as a president, this is complete overkill. And it's only going to get worse. And the Republican Party is completely responsible for it. I'll see you next time on The Brian McLean